I think all these successful companies look like they're broad now. The reality is, is that's not what their go-to-market looked like in the years of their scale. And so the way that you sort of tackle that big ambiguous broad is you slice it up into pieces and you work them basically one by one. And where companies get in trouble is they say, hey, we're starting to see traction in all these different slices. We can do them all at once. Biggest mistake, people drastically underestimate the amount of resources it takes, not just like, sure, the products in place, but the layering of marketing and support materials and email flows and all the, the things that you don't even think about, that's part of the product. And you'll never be able to operationalize those if you take too many of those horizontal segments. Welcome to the Product Marketing Life podcast, brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance and hosted by me, Mark Cassini, Product Marketing Manager at Jopper. Every two weeks, I pull insights from some of the world's most talented product marketers who uncover the secret sauce of successful product marketing. In this episode, I'm joined by Robert Kaminsky, Director of Product Marketing at Headway. In his own words, Robert describes his path to product marketing as a nonlinear one, starting as a prototype engineer in the medical field before transitioning into sales engineering and now product marketing. Today, Robert and the team at Headway help high growth SaaS startups learn from customers, design better, and build faster in a customer-led way. During our chat, Robert dives into his framework to achieve go-to-market success with horizontal products. He also shares his approach to creating and sharing actionable product marketing insights and guides on LinkedIn. In fact, it was one of those LinkedIn posts that spurred on the conversation you're about to hear. All right, with that out of the way, let's dive in. Hey, Rob, how's it going? I'm doing great, Mark. Glad to be here. Likewise, super happy to have you here today as well. Let's jump right into it then. Uh, be great if you could walk me through your career so far and what you do at Headway. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think like a lot of folks who end up in product management and product marketing roles, I've taken a non-linear path. So I actually got my start in engineering and product development in medical devices of all things. So I was working as a, in a prototyping unit for a spine uh, medical device company and kind of going end to end with product development and we're shipping these prototypes multiple a month. And what was really unique about that role is it gave me exposure to surgeons. And like, you're actually seeing your, your work show up. Like we talk about human centered design. It's like, that's maybe the extreme end of it. I was able to experience it that way. But that got me really curious about the commercialization because we do our prototyping. And then eventually as we recognize patterns and there's more need for what we built in the market, someone would take it and go, take it to market. But I had no idea what that meant. And so that pulled me into really business school. I found a unique program where you had to be an engineer to get in, but it was all focused on technology entrepreneurship and commercialization. And, and so that kind of like, you start consulting from day one when you're in that program, uh, but you also then get hammered with kind of the, the MBA structure of like how business models work and how you think about go to market. And so while I was there doing consulting, a couple different software companies, I joined a software company and like really my first software company, uh, Highland Software based out of Cleveland, Ohio. And I had a mentor there and in the program that I was in that basically said, hey, if you're really interested in this entrepreneurial track, which I always felt like I was on, go spend time in sales. And so I pivoted out of that first company to, I would say my first official startup, uh, a company called Four Winds Interactive out in Denver, Colorado, into a sales engineering role. And I spent five years there, uh, promoted a couple times through sales engineering, eventually leading a small sales team uh, to like cut my teeth on the front lines of what go-to-market looks like. So that was a great experience being a part of their growth from 5 million ARR to 50 million plus ARR. Uh, so super exciting, kind of got to see what success looked like. 
in my last year there, I ended up pivoting back into a really more formal product marketing role. Uh, but it was this hybrid role that sat with customer success. And we kind of had two tracks. One was supporting these big, hairy enterprise deals and like greasing the skids on those. And the other was trying to launch a down market product that's less customizable. Uh, and so that's where I like, kind of landed in product marketing. Uh, eventually, Four Winds Interactive sold to Vista Equity Group down here in Austin, Texas. Uh, and that I was starting to get curious a little bit about what product marketing looked like in bigger organizations. And so I ended up joining Oracle as part of their go-to-market group uh, in an innovation function, figuring out how they change the way they go to market on large enterprise deals. Did that for about a year. And then for the past three years, I've been at Headway, where Headway is more of a consultancy. Uh, we call ourselves a digital product studio, group of 40 or 50 folks, mostly design and development. Uh, I represent our product strategy arm uh, with a few other folks over there. And in, for the past year or so, we've been doubling down on building product marketing specific packages and services for early stage startups. Uh, and so that's the realm where Headway sort of fits in. Early stage startups, creating and launching new products, and then sometimes we'll work with large corporate innovation labs to help them do the same thing. Very cool. Yeah, you're right. Definitely a nonlinear path as you described it. Um, yeah. Quite a few questions that I want to follow up with you there. First one, I think you're the first product marketer I've spoken with who has experience bringing physical goods to market. You know, I think typically when you think product marketing, you think software, right? Just they go hand in hand. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, how has that experienced from that medical prototyping field framed or influenced how you approach software go to market? Are, are there any learnings or approaches that have you found transferable or is it almost like two completely different worlds? Yeah, it's a good question. I've never been asked that question before. And I think part of the reason is it translates really well. Like the fundamentals are still there of who has the problem? Is there enough people with the problem? How do you frame that in a way that's solvable, not just with your product? I think where it starts to get really unique in the physical aspect is your go-to-market gets more complex because of the logistic elements. Uh, and that's an area where I'm, I would not call myself an expert, but it's something you have to be really conscious of with you know, your suppliers and, and all the value change. And then because we were in medical devices, there's also that regulatory arm that sits over top of that. And so it adds a few other pieces that need to be figured out, but the translation to like, we primarily work with SaaS companies now, it's pretty one-to-one, -one. like good customer segmentation, good targeted messaging, and then, you know, working your way through channels and iterating, like it's all kind of the same. That's awesome. I'm actually really happy to hear you say that. Cause I think a lot of times, and I know myself, when I've seen roles being posted for you know, B2C companies or, you know, companies that are selling these tangible, physical consumer um, goods, there's this opinion that, oh, well, my experience is in software. There's no way that's translatable. And I've, I've even seen yeah. some of those roles specifically require hands in the or experience in the consumer space. So it's re reassuring yeah. to know that, you know, if you can frame it in the same way that you just did, that jump isn't as drastic or dramatic as, as some people might think. Totally. The only thing I would challenge on a bit is the model and the motions of your go-to-market is where you do want to have at least some foundation to stand on. Like you brought up B2C, obviously PLG is a hot topic right now. Uh, you should, if you haven't worked in that environment, you should have at least studied up on the other side of it to bring that piece to it. Uh, because that's where a lot of the nuance comes in, I think, when, it, when you get into the product marketing practice. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's much like applying for any new role or any new experience. You definitely want to do your homework and feel like you understand the space and as much as you can of that foundation. But yeah, you're right. I wouldn't want to make the jump completely uninformed and assume that, you know, you can hit the yeah. ground running from day one. Totally. Well, the other thing that I wanted to follow up on based on your experiences is the time you spent in, in sales and sales engineering. And 
I'm curious, has that, again, in, the, in kind of the same light, changed your approach to go to market, like having that real good hands-on sales experience? I would imagine it's only made things that much easier or, or, or stronger from a go-to-market strategy and execution perspective. But what were some of the kind of tangible lessons that you took away from that experience? Yeah, uh, honestly, I think it's something, uh, this goes beyond product marketing, kind of a belief I hold when you're, when you're talking about, especially SaaS companies uh, in go-to-market motions. I think there needs to be better cross-functional training holistically, like a day in the life of these different roles can solve a lot of the core challenges, especially at bigger companies of pushing the sludge through the, the pipes, so to speak. And so that's my, my meta level thinking uh, in the specifics, spending time owning a quota, having to develop unique pitches when you're in front of customers and really hearing their needs, nothing replaces it. And it's kind of this interesting thing because in product, we talk a lot about market research and spending time with customers. No one spends more time with customers than sales engineers and account executives. And so being dumped in that realm, because of my product background and my engineering background, I did really well with the discovery of just like, are we framing this problem correctly? But then you have to learn, like there's a switch and, and you get into the mentality of what it's like to be on a sales team. And it, you know, it's not like Gary Glenn Ross style, but it's close. It's like, we need to push deals over the finish line. Uh, the mentality shifts. It's about action and velocity and all these things that you don't even consider. And so that, I think the biggest thing is empathy for the role. And so when, when now when I'm creating anything from a product marketing standpoint, I can have an honest discussion with a sales rep or a CRO or a head of sales and really understand what they're trying to do to cross that bridge. And so tactically, like it's going to help. You're just going to learn more about the market and how people buy. That's like the big easy win because it's just right there in front of you. But the real win is just understanding how sales operates at all. Because I, I think if I didn't go into sales and I just learned like the, how marketing feeds sales, there's a big like blacked out area that you just don't understand. And it leads to poor decision-making. It leads to those like separate units and product marketing is all about working cross-functionally. So those are the biggest things that stand out to me um, having worked in sales for that long. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And, 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 you know, it's funny as you're saying that, that idea of getting that foundational cross-functional experience is so critical. And it's actually made me think, I feel like when I was doing my undergrad as long ago as that was, and I hate to admit how long ago that was, and even during my MBA, I saw a lot more roles at orgs that had built-in management trainee programs where you were like required to do anywhere from six to 12-month rotations in various uh, parts of the business, whether it was sales, whether it was marketing, whether it was customer success. Uh, and I feel like you don't see that as much anymore. Maybe that's just my own kind of bias and exposure to, to different kinds of roles, but I feel like that might be a practice. I don't know that I don't, I wouldn't argue that it could come back, but I, I think to your point, yeah. maybe it, it should make a return or, or, or software companies should look to maybe implement some of those, maybe not in a structured uh, mandatory way, but try yeah. and implement some kind of rotational program where product marketers or, or really anybody from across the org can spend time in those different departments. I totally agree. And there's there's two schools of thought on this. Um, looking back, my sort of tours of duty, as I call them, I was fortunate to work under a mentor when I was at that startup who let me have that, that range and navigating to these different spots. You're not going to find that in a lot of places. And a lot of times you have to fight for it yourself. The, the situations you're talking about, I remember those as well. Like, I'm like, man, those are so cool. You get to go get exposure to different parts of the org. And uh, actually a colleague of mine at Oracle, we always joked, it's like, man, our... Our mindset, and I think product marketers and product managers share this, our mindset is so 
founder CEO oriented, where it's like, where is the real track to be a CEO? And I personally believe that product management and product marketing specifically are the next generation of CEOs because of that range. Um, now it comes with its downfalls, right? You fall into, and a lot of product marketers fall into this, that generalist bucket. It means you're not particularly excellent at anything. So it's like, you're in this weird spot where you're, you're ultra employable because you can solve any problem. You can literally, I like to say, be dropped in any room and probably lead the room and figure it out. But that, that job description like doesn't exist. Drop person in room, solve problem. Like it's not a real thing. So like, I think for product marketers, what I would recommend, like hindsight is find your sweet spot where you're superior at, go deep there, and then find ways to do those tours of duty in that range across departments. Like I totally agree with you and your thinking there. For sure. Well, speaking of excellence and kind of, you know, being an expert in a specific area, when I segue to my next question here. I think there's a lot of voices on LinkedIn when it comes to the realm of product marketing. You get a lot of opinions or hot takes, as it were. And I think what differentiates your content on LinkedIn, and for anybody who doesn't know, Robert's quite active there. I think you post almost every day. Um, is that you actually provide, at least in my opinion, content that's actionable, insightful, and, and helpful. They're not just opinions that people can take away, you know, thinking these are things that you could actually implement in your day to day. So I just wanted to highlight that first and foremost, and then kind of really appreciate that, that Mark. Thanks for saying yeah, of that. Of course. But that leads me to my question. What was it that made you want to start that content on LinkedIn? And honestly, how hard is it to get in the practice of regularly doing it in a way that's actually helpful? Yeah, no, I love this question because it hit home. It really hits home to me of like my struggles. I've always wanted to write and be put in front of people, thought leadership, but it's really hard to do. I always had these ideas, but that whole motion of writing them down and I can write them down. I have like tons of writing unfinished, these big bulky write-ups that I thought were starting to be good. But you never get them done and you never publish them. That was always my problem. And so for us, like it's kind of this like perfect storm of events. Uh, I have a partner that I build all these product marketing models with and do a lot of our consulting with early stage startups. His name's Anthony Pieri. You'll probably see him bounce around LinkedIn as well. We're, we're very active there. Uh, he started to dabble in it and his very first post went mini viral, very first one, which like just doesn't happen. And he even admits like, it's not a repeatable thing. Like he, he broke like all the kind of rules that we're learning for ourselves and somehow it just worked. And so it was like, okay, if he just did that, I got to put the pedal to the metal and figure this out. And you brought up habit. It really has to start there. You got to find a way to unlock yourself to just publish every day. And our path, at least my path to valuable content starts with opinions. It's like, I didn't have all these frameworks totally flushed out. And so you almost have to start by sharing opinions and perspectives. I started doing a lot of analysis of other companies, uh, what their product market fit looked like, what their go-to-market looked like, and that helped me frame this point of view. And then as we started to work with more and more startups in this model, I'm just sharing what I see every day. And so the stuff we share, the reason I, I think that it's so actionable is it's stuff that Anthony and I actually use. Like we're, we're putting this in front of founders and walking them through it and then seeing where it breaks and then rebuilding it over and over. Um, the last thing I'll say in terms of finding the habit is systems. Like you really got to figure out a system for what, how do you get inspiration to write and find concepts? We get that through our work, but we're, we're also very curious. We spend a lot of time just in SaaS and with early stage founders. We listen to tons of podcasts. We read every book we can get our hands on on go to market and product. 
But you have to do that with this habit of take a note of something that's interesting and then go a step further and put your interpretation on it. And so if I like were to open up my notes app on my phone, I have probably 50 to 100 prompts of things that I think I want to share as a concept or a new framework that I'm working on. And then they sort of just work through the process, like find the time to sit down and work on them. And then at some point you just, you ship them. And the idea is to ship fast. And we're using LinkedIn a little bit like a, a public testing ground because it's valuable. Like it's just valuable us, is this valuable to you? And uh, it's really worked well. Like I never really thought of LinkedIn and social as a, a testing space, but it's very powerful for that. Yeah, I like that framing a lot. I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who probably wouldn't have thought to to kind of frame LinkedIn in that way. And I think it's it's super smart of you guys to do that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I too have seen some of Anthony's content. And I agree, it's you know top class, just like the stuff that you're putting out. And I think it's funny because you talk about you know you are framing opinions. And I think what sets the work that you and Anthony are doing apart from some of the other opinion sharers, let's call them, uh, that I've seen on LinkedIn is. I think you do it in a way that, again, is helpful, but you take a very objective view and it doesn't come off as snarky or superior. And I think that's a, a trap that a lot of people who want to share their opinions can fall into really easily. Um, you know, you're again, you're applying these frameworks and these um, approaches to thinking that remove, you know, not all the subjectivity, because again, like everything is subjective to a degree, um, but you're at least doing it in a way that like, hey, I'm going to apply this framework to this existing business or this existing something that, as you said, you've observed in market. Yeah. And I think it just helps make it a little bit more approachable. Uh, and I think that's something that I would love to see more of, right? Like, I, I think it's easy when you're in your own position as a product marketer to evaluate what your own company is doing. It gets a lot harder when you're doing that to, to other companies. And I know you, you know, regularly posted some of the bigger ones and, and one of the top, the topic they're going to talk about today, you know, kind of dives into how you've done that uh, in a little bit more detail. Uh, but I think that's what, again, sets some of your stuff apart is that you're, you're taking these real companies and applying real objective frameworks to them and highlighting how those same frameworks can be applied elsewhere or what the learnings are um, from how those companies are doing. Yeah. It. No, I appreciate you saying that. And like my, our, our thought process on this is we change our minds a lot. And so we try, even in when we have a, a strong opinion, it's loosely held. And so we try not to be bombastic about it and we engage. So chances are, if I post something that's, you know, a hot take or a spicy take of some sort, if you question it in the comments, like I'm using that to like refine my thinking. I'm going to chat with you. I'm going to talk to you about it and be like, why do you think that way? Here's why I think that way. And we change our minds almost daily. I think that's one of like, the thing that Anthony and I do, like we debate daily they say iron sharpens iron, but we just like argue with each other around a concept. And then usually some insight falls out and we're like, we should post that. You write it up this way, I'll write it up this way and let's see what happens. And like, then we, we kind of see what the community thinks to refine our thinking. And it's really, uh, yeah, it's been powerful. Yeah, and I think you're very fortunate to, to have found yourself a, a colleague and a partner that you can do that with. I think a lot of, yes. especially solo PMMs aren't as fortunate. And I think, you know, to counter that, what you just explained is, is a great way for those solo PMMs to get that experience is to engage with content like yours and Anthony's post in the comments, provide, if you, again, if you have an opinion that you think runs counter to you know what yourself or Anthony are putting out there, then absolutely post in the comments, have that dialogue. I think a lot of people get really nervous about posting on a place like in LinkedIn because it's on the internet, it's there forever. Yeah. But again, to your point, if it's a strong opinion loosely held and you're not inserting any nastiness into it, it's just a conversation. And I think yeah. if, if more people approach it that way, you get a lot more pro uh, productive dialogue. Yeah. It's a real fear though. And you just have to just publish. Everyone's going to forget tomorrow. Like, it's so funny how like we'll throw ideas just to test. Like, I wonder what people would think if we said this and it's like, huh. And like, sometimes you think people are going to get upset and it's like, nobody said anything. 
it's like, okay, that's a signal around something like did it sharpen your opinion. And so it, it, a lot of it is getting over that fear. And as someone who's new to LinkedIn, we've only been doing this for about six months. Um, you get over that quickly and you learn and like kind of how to guide the ship and uh, yesterday's thoughts are just opportunities to learn and make better information and models going forward today. Love that. Well, let's transition ever so slightly uh, sure. and, and really dive deep into the, what I wanted to, to talk with you about today. And that's this idea of horizontal products. Now, before we get too far, I think it'd be great if you could explain in your opinion, what a horizontal product is. Yeah. A horizontal product to me is a product that can be used in many different ways by many different people. Uh, and this sets up the situation where it's like, wow, the market is huge. Anyone could use it in all these different ways. Uh, but it creates all these challenges in terms of getting the, the narrow personas and use cases really fleshed out. So VCs love it. Startup founders love it. There's money thrown at horizontal products, but they are hard to take to market. Yeah, we'll get into exactly why that's the case in just a second here. And I think one of the problems because of that broad scope of use across all those different personas and use cases, uh, the horizontal products can often fall into that all things for all people problem, which we know tends to lead to poor product market fit and ultimately failure, right? You've seen countless examples of companies going to market or launching new products, and they try and be all in one or all things to all these people and, and they flop. Um, so again, I, I want to ask you, why do products like Loom, Notion, and Asana avoid that? Or how have they avoided it? Yeah, my take on this is sequencing in a word, and I'll expand on that. Um, I think all these successful companies look like they're broad now. The reality is, is that's not what their go-to-market looked like through the years of their scale. And so the way that you sort of tackle that big ambiguous broad is you slice it up into pieces and you work them basically one by one. And where companies get in trouble is they say, hey, we're starting to see traction in all these different slices. We can do them all at once. Biggest mistake, people drastically underestimate the amount of resources it takes, not just like, sure, the products in place, but the layering of marketing and support materials and email flows and all the, the things that you don't even think about, that's part of the product. And you'll never be able to operationalize those if you take too many of those horizontal segments. Um, so that's the meta level. I don't know if that triggers a question. Uh, we'll probably dive into that a little bit here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely want to dive into what that you know sequential process looks like. Uh, but yeah. before we do, I just want to highlight another thought leader who, who's kind of framed some similar opinions. And, and Tamara Graminski, for anybody who hasn't, you know, seen her content, absolutely seek it out. She has a new newsletter that she recently launched. She's also done some courses with the PMA. But to me, as you're speaking, I think what that ultimately boils down to, at least at the beginning, is, you know, really, really clear and concise segmentation. To your point of, you, you can see this traction in all these different customer groups, but in, until you're able to clearly segment those groups and really identify which of those segments are, you're seeing the most success or where you're delivering the most value, you're going to have a hard time figuring out where to start. Uh, so I guess maybe less of a question, more of just a, a recommendation and to listeners for, to look for more, yeah. more insight. I don't know if you wanted to add to that or build on I that. I do, but... yeah, because therein lies the rub. You're spot on, but there's challenges to it. And so this will get into kind of the, the mental model I have. When you start with a horizontal product, I, I kind of describe it as you're, you're in your experimental go-to-market where you're hopefully doing some segmentation, but when you're starting from scratch, you have nothing. You don't have product data. You probably have poor market data, whatever you can get your hands on. And your approach should be broad. So I think about that early stage go-to-market. 
I'll, I'll almost always tell a founder, like, never go after your TAM. In the early days, go after your TAM. Talk to anyone with a pulse who is curious about what you're doing in the vicinity of your problem space. And you do that for learning. You do that to tune the product. And then you're starting to build the muscles uh, from a marketing and sales perspective of like, man, is this repeatable anyway? And so you're in that first phase of like traction. And a lot of founders do this fairly well because they're excited. They're talking about their product. They're basically running across their TAM. But getting to good segmentation, as you put it, is the to, is the basically the foundation to make that leap into a targeted go-to-market and kind of a growth phase. But you can only do that if you're acquiring data and then taking a really aggressive look at your market to segment. And the last thing I'll say, and this might take us into it down a path, is I've seen startups who they experiment well, they know they're experimenting, they actually do segmentation really well off of that, and then they don't make a decision. They're like, look at all this. It's, it's like, all right, let's go after it all, or let's start here. And it's like, that is the mentality, but you have to be almost like ruthless with the way that you say, hey, of these 10 segments that we could go after, this is the, these are the top two and the only ones we're going to put 80% of our resources in. That's where I see the big mistake moving from experimental go-to-market into a targeted go-to-market, that like first phase uh, jump for horizontal products. Looking to propel your product, prove your strategic value and transform your career prospects? Sign up for Product Marketing Certified Core, the comprehensive product marketing course designed with current and aspiring product marketers in mind. Boost your confidence and competence as a multifaceted expert by journeying through 11 key modules, 128 exam questions, and more than 20 actionable templates with training on pricing strategies, market research, messaging and positioning, go-to-market, and more. By the end, you'll earn a certification accredited by the Chartered Institute of Marketing and the CPD Certification Service, trusted by thousands of your peers and sought after by brands like HubSpot, Google, TikTok and Adobe. We mean it when we say you're learning from the best of the best. So if you're looking to transition into product marketing or become a strategic growth machine in your current role, take the leap and get certified. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic observation. You're right. You know, if you can get the data, if you can, you know, go through that experimentation phase and, and find those segments, the last thing you want to do is go after all of them. Uh, and I think, you know, again, like that's the definition of that all things for all people problem. Uh, have, well, I, I do want to get back to that process and kind of spell it out more cleanly. Cause again, you know, you, you recently posted and you've been posting for some time about this topic. Um, but where do you think a product marketer or how, how does a product marketer go about if they've done that, that experimentation, figuring out, okay, we want to start with this segment or these two segments, like what goes into that decision? Um, yeah. yeah, it'd be great to hear from, from your perspective. Most of what I see, and so primarily we work with early stage. So for us, that's seed series A. This might look different for later stage companies. In fact, I know it's a bit different because they don't even care. They just find a segment and they're going to throw money at it and try and figure it out anyway. Um, so this conversation around prioritizing, usually what happens is there, there's it's product first. So oftentimes someone has a thing that they built or that they want to build. And they're sort of this solution looking for a market. 
And so you have to do these exercises as a sort of reverse engineer, like, well, who are you even building for? We, that's like a question we ask point blank to a lot of product leaders and founders. And it's funny because we don't always get the best answers. It's like, well, anyone who's doing this. And so it's like, oh, okay, you're not building for anyone. You're building for this use case. It's like, okay, we can work with that. But then you need to take the use case and pull it back to like, who are the specific people? And for whatever reason, that's really uncomfortable for a lot of founders in these early product teams, um, especially in these horizontal products, because I think they see the potential so much. But if you don't do that, you're going to end up with a really crazy looking product roadmap. And so, so like that, you have to sort of look at and take a, it's, it's a guess of like, who's going to be best fit for the product. And that's where that experimentation starts, just with the hypothesis of like, these types of people would be the best for it. And then as you start to run into them, and then maybe even close some of them early deals, that's where you start to get data. And, and when we say data, it's not just like, hey, you, all your revenue is coming from this spot. That still might not be great. You have to look at it over the whole like life cycle. And this is another thing with B2B with these, especially larger ACB type products. You don't even know if they're a good fit until sometimes a year or two years down the line. And so there's, there's a couple layers to look at this. Um, you, you make the guess on this upfront, but then you look at who's easy to reach, Who's easy to sell? So we're talking velocity through your sales process, however immature it is. Who onboards fast? Who's easy to support? And who sticks around? And you'll notice in those four or five things, size doesn't really matter. So another observation in this is like, and I think this comes from VCs in general. They say big market, go get part of the big market. And people assume I'll pick the biggest segment, more room for error, like we'll be fine. But if they don't fit your product, you're just creating a big issue that's gonna show up downstream. And so um, yeah, size doesn't matter because you're creating a wedge. Ideally, they're best fit to the product. And so I took your question down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but if I were to summarize, early days, best guest segmentation, where you're almost creating these profiles, tying it to the use case, and then extrapolating that out to criteria to build a targeted audience, and then test, go plant yourself in front of them. And the data is messy. A lot of it's qualitative uh, early days. And that's why if you're a PMM doing this for an early stage startup, you need to be attached at the hip to whoever's actually running the sales motion. And a lot of times it's a founder. If you don't have that and you're separated, you're in a room and the answers are outside. And no worries at all about going down a rabbit hole. I, I love a good rabbit hole. So, And I think where we landed was super helpful. So, so thanks for sharing uh, those insights. I want to just quickly go back on something that you mentioned and this idea of observing sometimes when interacting with founders and product leaders, a sense of fear around selecting a segment or specific group of customers to go after. I'm curious, where do you think that fear ultimately stems from? And if you are a product marketer who's working very closely with a product leader or a founder, how can a product marketer kind of assage or address those fears and move things forward? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think the fear comes back to funding ultimately. Usually what happens, especially when we get brought into the fold, it's like, okay, you have some money, you have some traction. Now you have to start to formalize your go-to-market and make it a little bit more like process oriented. And so you might bump into someone like me or there's other folks out there that do this. And you just left the table with your VC where all the discussion is around size of market and revenue goals and reaching milestones. And so you leave that, just imagine being a founder, you leave that meeting saying, okay, I got to get to a million ARR in the next 12 to 18 months. 
daunting, right? And so when then you step back into your business, that like fun strategy land, that high level, you're back into the reality of your probably strung together product that's not complete yet on top of processes that are really just slack chaos disguised with some good organization. Uh, when, you, when you go through then the exercise of like, we need to hit those targets, the math doesn't always work out. Like, and so there's this tendency to say like millionaire R, okay, we did the segmentation and that's where like, oh, ooh, big one. Like, let's go there. We only have 12 months, let's go. And I think it's like the most counterintuitive thing as it relates to startups. And I think it applies really to any business. It's that old riches in the niches aspect. I think nothing holds more true for early stage founders and startups of like, and, and I think part of the reason is you, we underestimate the value of having a wedge, no matter how small it is. And by wedge, that's that early adopter segment that you absolutely own, use whatever metaphor you want, like that small pond that's yours, that you're the big fish, how much that parlays into growth into the other areas. And so, yeah, the fear, ultimately, I think it's pressure from VCs and forgetting that VCs are looking out for your big picture vision, but they're not great operators in most cases. And so when you bring it back to the reality of where you're at, you have to think small in order to get to, to those big outcomes. And uh, that's just a hard, hard switch. And it's, you get pressure, you signed up for it, your name's on it. Um, I think that can create a lot of that. And ultimately I think it leads to poor decision-making, which is a shame. So we try and talk founders off the ledge on there of like, trust us, like you'll be in a better spot if you start small uh, rather than trying to go big. And I think that's where we see a lot of companies hit growth walls because they try and go too big too fast. Yeah, I love that. And we'll get back into the sense of pressure in just a minute here because I think pressure gets applied uh, and go to market for horizontal products in a couple other ways. But before we do, and I know we've danced around a little bit and I've, I've kind of pulled you off, off uh, track here a little bit, um, but I think it'd be great if you could just outline what that process is as you've defined it uh, and just give the listeners a bit more yeah. context as to how they can take these horizontal products to market in a, in a really efficient way. Yeah. So at, at a high level, I call these kind of the, the four go-to-market phases for uh, horizontal products. And so the first one is your, your experimental go-to-market. You're likely pre-seed or seed. You have this idea of a problem area. You've got a form of a product or MVP. You don't really know who it's best for. Uh, so imagine being like Airtable in the early days. It's like, man, this could be used for anything. And so they're out there, they're talking to content creators and video producers and people running timeline tracking and project. They're talking to everybody and just seeing like other use cases. So from that broad experimentation, eventually you want to prioritize and pick one, sometimes it creeps into two or three, into a targeted go-to-market. That's where you say, hey, we have enough traction and focus. Our product aligns really well with this persona and use case where it's time to double down and operationalize. Um, so this is where you get a little more formality in your go-to-market. You have set up cadences and scripts. Your segmentation is really clean. And you build up all the materials around the product to serve that use case. So that's, that's your first phase of growth in the targeted go-to-market. From there, you use the, the revenue ultimately and the success. And sometimes it'll come through funding because you'll be showing great results in that targeted good market. And sometimes it's just, I like the more organic. Fund your next go-to-market segment with the one that you just operationalized where you start to go broad. And so that's where like Airtable, let's say that they, and I don't know their exact story, but let's say that they started with content creators and that content calendar in a visual way. And they, they then operationalized that as a targeted go-to-market. 
well, they might move over to a different type of content creator or someone on the marketing side who's looking at content a little differently where the use case is tweaked and operationalize those multiple targeted go-to-markets. And so we've moved from experimentation to targeted to multiple targeted. And then the fourth phase, which I have it as a fourth phase, but it's really something that starts to get built after you operationalize a single segment and it's the expansion go-to-market. And what's different here in all those materials I talked about to get someone acquired and retained in your product, this goes a little bit further into true expansion. And so think more customer success playbooks, really thinking and being mindful about product-led growth loops and how you share and expand. And the focus in that expansion go-to-market phase is LTV growth, not net new revenue growth. Um, and the, these companies are successful ultimately because of that expansion growth, like moving up into the enterprise like we see. Uh, that's why PLG has been a big thing. And people, what they don't realize is that that is a long journey. It's not a page you stand up on your site. Oh, there's a free version now and you're good to go. Like this goes all into uh, solving for go-to-market. So summarize, experimentation go-to-market, moving into a targeted prioritized go-to-market for a beachhead, expanding to other beachhead and operationalizing those as you go. And then meanwhile, working on your expansion go-to-market, which is retention playbooks and LTV. Yeah, and honestly, I love that framework so much. And it really was the impetus for me reaching out to getting you on the show because I think it's so clean and so clear and, and easy to understand. And I think as a product marketer, you could take that to anybody within the org and explain it to them and they would get it. It wouldn't have to be your product marketer be like, oh yeah, I understand how this makes sense. Like anybody across the org can hear that and be impressed, I think. Um, and I love that you framed that in the example of ClickUp. Um, and I think you've seen it and we mentioned some of these other companies, ClickUp, Notion, Airtable, or sorry, you use Airtable. Um, I'll, I'll throw forward mm -hmm. uh, ClickUp. But I remember when I forget which of the three launched, seeing it and thinking like, okay, I get that this could be very powerful, but I get the vibe that they don't really know at that stage who is the most powerful for. And, and it felt, and again, I'm not going to call out which specific one, mainly because I don't remember, um, but it, it just felt like a little bit of not wishy-washy, but again, that idea of trying to be all things to all people. And I remember leaving the website being like, uh, I don't know, like this isn't for me. Yeah. Um, and again, that could have just been where they were at the stage of their growth and they weren't targeting product marketers or someone like me. But I, I think, you know, <clears throat> had they, or, or maybe they have applied that framework as you've outlined it, you can, you can start to see how they can, you know, chart that path forward to, to going yeah. from all things to all people to starting with one very targeted go-to-market motion, finding success, replicating it, and then once they've repl replicated across all the segments and personas that they've targeted or identified, starting to then focus on this idea of expansion and LTV. So yeah, just wanted to reiterate how much I love that framework and, and how applicable it is. Yeah. One thing that might be useful too is like, it's clean as a framework, it's messy in the jumps. And I think that's what you're hitting on. So when you move from experimentation to targeted, there is a lot of, call it product sense or like market intuition. But ideally, that's why you're a founder or you're attached to the founder. You're so close that you have to make that kind of leap of faith first decision to do targeted. Now, there should be data to back it up, but it's the most loose there. And then where the, the next edge sort of happens is when you do to the multiple targeted, usually you've seen growth. You're like, you're then like, okay, we're in the good ARR state. We've got more funding. VCs and founders see that and they say, hey, you guys have operationalized around this segment. There's all these untapped segments. Go turn them on. And in theory, 
they're right. Operationally, not so much because the, what you're, the core assumption in there is that the same playbook is going to work for this different persona. It's either different persona, same use case, or different use case, same persona. Not always the case. We, the way we describe it is when you're a horizontal product, there's no such thing as product market fit for your whole product. What you really have are a collection of product market fits, plural. Uh, and so the, the second one, the risk there when you're doing the multiple targeted is just assuming that you can win because you've won another segment. It's a separate journey to operationalize. Uh, and so that's the secondary caution when you're moving uh, past that initial scale phase. Yeah, you're right. And I appreciate the the kind of candidness there because I think, as you said earlier, much like PLG, oftentimes, you know, we in marketing or we in business and more broadly, we hear these frameworks and these terms and we think, oh, well, they've summed it up so succinctly. It must be so simple. And then you actually get in the weeds or you start to actually start to execute and realize like, holy crap, this is a lot harder than I think anybody thought it was yeah. going to be. Um, so yeah, I appreciate that context there. You know, and we mentioned it, and I think you kind of touched on it briefly just now, but this this idea of pressure, whether it's coming from, you know, VCs or maybe even internally from sales and marketing partners. So I'm, I'm curious in your mind, how can a product marketer avoid pressure either internally or externally to jump to the next phase of the process prematurely? Yeah, it's such a great question. And uh, I'm going to challenge it a bit because avoiding that pressure, I do not recommend avoiding the pressure. Uh, my take on this, and I, I think this applies whether you're an uh, early stage startup or at a large company, you actually have to run at that pressure. It's probably the scariest thing that a product marketer has to do, uh, but you have to tackle that problem head on. Uh, and, and the reason for that, in my opinion, is because ultimately go-to-market is owned by the founder, by the CEO. If you don't have a CEO that owns that, you're, you're already in trouble. It's so like point number one is to convince them, no, you're the only one speaking to the CEO who has influence across all the departments to actually make go-to-market fun go function together rather than in their separate silos. Now, that's daunting. Uh, a lot of times we're gonna be a little more junior. We're not CEOs and founders, we are on the, that track. And so this goes back into our conversation around, do you have the breath? Can you have a conversation at a CEO strategy level to have knowledge of how marketing works, knowledge about how sales works, knowledge about customer success, be deadly enough in the product and with customers and then understand how you tie it all together in like revenue operations. That's the level of conversation you need to have to get influence. Otherwise you're going to be in a silo. You're going to be nested under marketing and you're going to be the, the sales deck jockey or the, you know, we need a piece of collateral when PMMs at their best are breaking down barriers across those. And so to me, you got to run right at it. Don't avoid it. Uh, and and it, it comes to like empathy and relationship building, which is something that is like kind of one of those intangible skills that you just, it's one of those big gaps that I think product marketers need to start stepping into quite a bit. Yeah, I like how you frame that. And it's funny, it's almost like we've come full circle a bit because we talked at the beginning of our conversation about, you know, facing the fear of, of posting on LinkedIn and, and, and getting those ideas out there. Um, much like with, you know, facing, feeling that pressure run towards it, embrace it, and, you, you know, be surprised at the outcomes. And, you know, yeah. especially in go-to-market, I think oftentimes um, we focus so much on, well, it's all, or, or we assume rather, everything's going to go well, right? Like we don't often talk about at least whether it's on these podcasts or in communities or externally when, when go-to-markets fail, because there's this inherent fear of like, oh, this is going to re reflect poorly on me as a PMM. But I think by running towards that pressure and embracing it and having the support and buy-in of the CEO, it's okay to fail 
like obviously you wouldn't want to fail in a way that's going to you know destroy the business but yeah. you have to learn from that failure just like if you were to post something on linkedin and it flops you learn what what didn't work here well yeah. what did i say what did i do that didn't work um so I, that's another kind of takeaway i would take from that idea of running that pressure is like you got to be comfortable with with failing sometimes and, and learning from that failure and moving forward and if you as a product marketer can find the leading indicators of failure you're upper echelon and an example of this that we see working with a lot of early stage companies we're, we're getting pretty good at this is the precursor to failing at go to market usually comes back to lack of knowledge about the customer and the fit with their product. And so we just were running a, a workshop with a founder. They raised a few million bucks. They've got these users, early traction, and we're running these sessions. We were doing a bit of customer segmentation, trying to whittle down to a best fit that we might craft a message for. And the workshop just stalled, came to a grinding halt. And we're like, man, were we bad at this? Or like, what's happening? And when we looked at it, what was really happening is we had found a gap of their teams and their founder. They didn't know their customers well enough to actually execute the exercise. And so if you can identify those, and we did this and communicated to the founder and, and he got it, he was like, you're totally right. Probably saved him millions of dollars and 18 months of his time because he was ready to jump in and operationalize when he's like, no, 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 we're still, this just told me we're still in experimentation. And so you have to find those precursors. And I, I would say it's really hard if you're a product marketer in an org. I feel really lucky we work with tons of founders each week. And so I get to bring these stories in as like my, they're like my chips. So just like, um, I've seen this elsewhere. You're going down a dangerous path. I can introduce you to this founder. You guys can talk through it. Uh, so bringing in third parties can be super powerful. Like, and I think that goes into our conversation of cross-functional, bring someone in from a different department, bring someone in from a different company who experienced the same problem. What I found is that most professionals at the level are willing to share their stories, like much like we're doing here to learn. Uh, so that's like my last caveat to like, how do you challenge? Look for the leading indicators and then call it out. Don't hide behind it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the benefits, again, of, of being a product marketer or working within product marketing is if you're doing your job right, you should have that cross-functional um, access and those relationships to get those early signals from those customer-facing teams. Because, you know, especially yeah. if you're only one PMM or one person, like you can't possibly be all places at once. So you need to have those relationships so that, again, you can get those early signals and those precursors fed to you from those teams proactively, or maybe even, you know, uh, or sorry, yeah, proactively, or maybe reactively, um, depending on kind of the relationship that you've established. But that's the importance of that cross-functional work to, 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 you know, have those, those signals come to you first and for you to kind of raise the yeah. alarm uh, and red flag as, as early as you can. Totally agree. Cool. So, not to go too down a, a dour note here, um, but on this idea of, of failure, um, I, I, I kind of want to prod here a little bit, because again, it's not something we, we often talk about in the concept of, of go to market. Um, but when it comes to specifically the multiple target GTM phase uh, of your framework, how can product marketers avoid repeating the process of expanding into new use cases and personas without having them feel too similar and as a result, send mixed messages to multiple audiences. Yeah. So I have, I have two thoughts on this primarily. Um, and this will come back, I think, again. But good so customer segmentation usually solves this. But even in the, this thought of, are they too similar? When you move to your adjacent segments, they should be adjacent, meaning they actually should be similar. Like if we pull in like an Airtable random example, like if Airtable had already operationalized around 
social media managers managing a content calendar using their product, it's probably not wise to move into a segment where they're helping researchers in a lab schedule a study. Like they're better off moving like slightly over either to solve a, another problem for that social media manager or slightly over to solve a content problem for a different persona. And so my take is they actually should be similar and similar by design where you're either pivoting the persona one notch or you're pivoting the use case one notch. Because if you le if you go too far, then you're truly building different products because you get some economies of scale. Like what I mean by that is like all the work that say Airtable did to operationalize around that social media manager and that content calendar, 30% of it is reusable, right? Like let's take some of those materials and templates that made sense. Like it probably would work for a marketing director who's organizing a little bit bigger content calendar, like that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I, I think the key, but it all comes back to segmentation too. So one thing that um, we're trying to figure this out for ourselves is segmentation could be done in so many different ways. And I think the hardest, the hardest aspect for us to figure out is that it's so product specific. So using your product data, is probably the most powerful way to segment. Um, the catch 22 is if you're early, you don't have a lot of product data. And so you're back into that gut check space. Um, but in, in general, you shouldn't have those, if you're moving to different segments, they need to be distinct. If one of those could ever fall into the other one where you get in those gray areas of like, are we delivering that same message? That's where you get in trouble. And so usually when I see folks who have that challenge of like, this message is getting to the wrong person. It's like, I go back to how they're building audiences and how they're actually segmenting. Granted, there's gonna be some fringe overlap. It's not a clean line, but as long as you're on the majority side of that with good segmentation with a adjacent use case, um, you, you can be in a good spot and they should play off each other in a positive way. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think if if you have a good foundational GDN, a go-to-market motion that you've operationalized, as you said, it should be, I would imagine, somewhat easy for you to evaluate the collateral that you built for that first segment and quickly go through, is this going to work with the next segment? Yes, great. Let's yep. make the tweaks. No, okay, let's create something different. And again, it, it comes down yep. to that keyword of operationalizing, putting the processes and documentation in place to make sure that you have that kind of catalog of, hey, this is what worked with this segment. What can yep. we repurpose and and and, and um and, and use again, uh, where it makes sense? Yeah, yep. And I think the to add the last piece on that too is like, when you're staying in the same persona, you're going to have much better luck with whatever you did previously working, because the channel's usually the same, the motion's the same. Like you're you're reaching roughly the same person, <laughs> uh, and so it's when you make those jumps where it's like it seems the same. Look, they're at the same company but one's a social media marketing manager and the other is a director of marketing. It's like, there's different expectations, right? There's no, you're no longer pumping ads to the, the marketing manager. You got to find a different way to get in front of that director of marketing. And so kind of a, a loose example, but something I see. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super helpful. Awesome. Well, listen, Rob, this has been fantastic. I feel like you and I could go on and on about this for forever. Um, for sure. But I do have to let you go. And I want to ask you uh, my final question. And again, this one I've been asking guests on the show just this year. So it's relatively new. Um, so here it is. What's an area of focus within the realm of product marketing or close to it that you think product marketers will have to pay extra attention to this year, more so than in previous years? Yeah, I, for me, 
it comes back to customer segmentation, but I'll take it a step further. It's customer segmentation and what that means for the business planning. Like I look at PMMs, especially with early stage startups, they should be at that founder's table level and being able to have those conversations. We talked about the pressure from VCs and needing to get to results. You're the conduit to that. And I think sometimes product marketers can hide behind like, well, I'll do the segmentation I'll do it pretty good. And then it's really about just building a message and we'll take it from there. And all the metrics happen downstream. I think if you actually know the metrics upstream for what's going to drive the meta level growth and what, how you choose segments is it number one, it gives you influence with those stakeholders to alleviate that pressure from everyone else that we talked about. Um, and with that influence comes a bit of steering and control. Um, you're going to make better decisions and, and, you know, it's kind of really matching that quantitative with the qualitative. And I think product marketers are always have the qualitative. They're usually pretty good connecting with people and customers. It's that quantitative segmentation. So that to me, I think is really important. It's something that Anthony and I are working on now. So maybe you'll see more models for us and how to approach it. Uh, I just think it, it could be a total game changer to buy influence and elevate the PMM role. Love that. And, and on that note of, you know, keeping an eye on your content from, from both yourself and from Anthony. Obviously, it goes without saying. You can catch both of them, as we've said, throughout this conversation on LinkedIn. But if any of the listeners want to reach out to you, maybe you know we've got some founders or or people thinking about launching their own um, product or business, and they want to engage with with Headway uh, in a more professional context. What's the best way for them to do that? Honestly, it's still LinkedIn. Like that is my uh, becoming my CRM, my touch point with clients and customers. Uh, I hope they elevate some of their chat tools, but for now it works. So yeah, find me on LinkedIn or Anthony Pieri, shoot us a DM. Uh, we're usually pretty good about getting back to folks and starting a conversation. Awesome. Like I said, you know, if, if you aren't following Rob and Anthony on LinkedIn, you absolutely need to have to listen to this. Uh, I personally speaking have found a tremendous amount of value from their, from their content. Uh, I've got a, you know, swipe file that I maintain and I would think I 80 to hundred percent of your content lives in there already. So I, I first find it super valuable. Awesome. Well, like I said, Rob, this has been great. Uh, you know, I look forward to seeing the uh, the great content that you and Anthony are going to continue to push out over the coming you know quarters, years, however long that might be. Uh, and I just want to, again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Mark. This was fun. Love to do it again. For everyone still tuned in, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic, or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to spot an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are.